Hello, and welcome to St. Paul's Growing Together, a Bible study podcast resource for the St. Paul's Lutheran Church and School in Bourbonnet, Illinois. Because we believe that studying God's Word is important, and that through our time together in God's Word, we grow in our faith in Jesus and our love for one another, we are offering you a chance to come grow with us through listening in on our Bible studies. We now join a Bible class on the Book of Acts, taught by our associate pastor, Mike Hanel. We shall begin. Uh, again, catching us up last week, uh, we shifted, we were in chapter 8. This is what is the aftermath of the martyrdom of Stephen. Uh, remember, the, the church is is growing there in Jerusalem. Everything we're listening to is about Jerusalem and how the Jews are hearing this message that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. And this is causing a little bit of friction. There are some people that are, are believing the church is growing, but Satan is starting to, to buckle down and attacks are coming against the church. First, it was just against the apostles, but now it's against this guy, Stephen, who is an, an apostle, but it was one of the seven chosen to wait on tables. And it appears that he's, he's bringing the message with him. He's not just bringing food uh, but he's bringing the message and was getting into arguments and disputes and people couldn't answer against him. Uh, his wisdom was too much. And so the only answer they had was to turn to violence and they put him to death after his long speech. Well, then the next thing we hear is that persecution hits in Jerusalem with fervor. And so people are scattering. They're leaving Jerusalem, the Christians, that is, except the apostles. The apostles are still going to stay there. If you were in church this morning or are going, uh, Sunday, or were there on Saturday, you heard a gospel reading from Luke 21. And that gospel reading really, I think, hits the nail on the head. This is what was starting to go on, where Jesus talked about how before Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, that, that they were going to come after the disciples now the apostles, and that they would be kicked out of the synagogues, and that they would be handed over by their parents, by their brothers, by their relatives and friends, and that they wouldn't have to worry about what it is that they would say as they would be brought before uh, judges and brought into trials, but, but that he would give them wisdom. The, the wisdom that, that nobody could contradict. And so that's exactly what we saw happen with Stephen. But the persecution increases and we see the scattering, which again, the Lord uses this. The Lord uses Satan's attacks on the church to get the word out even more. This isn't necessarily the first time it has happened. Again, we flash back to Pentecost. People that were there in the city in Pentecost went home and they brought the message home. But as far as the narrative that Luke is giving us, he's specifically kind of tracing Acts 1-8, that, that Jesus said that the disciples, now apostles, would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. So when we hit Acts 8, we're seeing now the next phase of that. 
Philip uh, goes to the Samaritans, and we talked a lot about how significant that was, and things seem to go really good there. He preaches the word, he evangelizes the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, and even though there were differences in what the Samaritans believed and what the Jews believed, there is that common connection of the Messiah we know from John chapter 4, and we talked about that, but there's some wrinkles some problems that are happening there in Samaria. There's this guy named Simon Magus, Simon the Magician, the sorcerer. And he was the really important guy of the city in Samaria that Philip goes to. And people were following him and listening to him because he had all of these wonderful signs, uh, magic tricks that he could do. And then Philip comes and he comes not only with that word about Jesus as the Messiah, but he comes with signs. The, the healings, the casting out of demons, the things that the apostles were doing, the things that Jesus was doing, Philip is now doing among them. And so the people are believing. The next phase of the story, though, is that the apostles still back in Jerusalem are sent into this Samaritan city to kind of like, what is this? That the, the Samaritans are are, are Christians, that they, they are a part of us, that they are our brothers in Christ. Because before, they were not at all on the same level. But it's a little bit more complicated than just that. We talked about how there's this verse, Acts 8.16, that uh, causes everyone to stumble. Because when Philip was there evangelizing, he preached the word, and then he baptized them. But now that the apostles are there, they find out that the Holy Spirit has not yet come. And what's that about? Big, long discussion, but we kind of summarized it saying it didn't mean necessarily that they didn't have the Holy Spirit before. Just like at Pentecost, the disciples didn't not have the Holy Spirit. They certainly did. But the gifts of the Holy Spirit in this special way where the Holy Spirit is given in very powerful and visible ways to confirm among the people that this is God at work. God is doing something here. And the people really needed that because how do you know that this guy speaking isn't just another false prophet? They were told in the uh, Old Testament, Moses said, you always have to test the prophets, test the spirits. Well, the Holy Spirit is giving this confirmation. And so my best explanation uh, at, at what's happening at Acts 8.16 is that at, at each phase of this journey from Acts 1-8, where the gospel goes out to a new group for the first time, the Spirit visibly confirms that work. It happens at Pentecost with the disciples, apostles, uh, with the, the tongue of fire and the wind and them speaking in tongues. But then that didn't happen every single time after that, that they went and proclaimed the gospel. It was just kind of that first that first step, that first phase. And here, with the Samaritans, something new is going on here. This is not the same kind of regular evangelism that has happened in Jerusalem. This is a new group that prior to this, Jews would not have thought, these are our equals, they, these are our brothers. But now, the apostles know, because the Holy Spirit was given in this visible way, that they are. They are true Christians. They are a part of us. And the, the thing that is lacking 
in Acts 8.16 and the following verses there around there is it doesn't say how they knew the Holy Spirit had fallen on them. It doesn't exactly say what was the new thing that was there that wasn't there. Because previously we heard that they believed, that they were baptized. So, you know, what's the new thing? Was it that they were speaking in tongues? What was it? All we know is that Simon, our, our guy here, who was said to be one of those Samaritans who believed and was baptized, he now sees that the Holy Spirit is present among them. Luke doesn't tell us what it is that, that he sees that makes him understand this, but it's very clear that there's some visible thing that, that has happened among them because Simon now sees it and he asks the apostles, I liked Philip for what he was doing. You know, he had some miraculous signs, but what you guys are doing is, wow, you're like a step above that. And how can I do what you guys are doing? How can I pray and, and give people the Holy Spirit? Um, and what, you know, what, 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 what will it take? What will it take? Ten, twenty dollars, thirty dollars, fifty, you know, kind of the highest bidder sort of thing. And immediately something becomes clear that maybe wasn't uh, clear before that although it seemed like Simon had repented, changed his ways, because remember before, he just wanted to be the most important guy in the city, the one that everybody looked to, the one who has these special powers. But First, when Philip came, it seemed like he too was among those that believed and, and was baptized, and he, he changed his life around. But now that the apostles are there, um, it's hard to know if he repented of his repentance and is going back to his old ways of, I want to be that top dog. I want to be able to do powerful things like this, um, or if he just, you know, tried to say the right words and do the right things before. Luke doesn't really probe into uh, Simon's previous motives. All we know is that now his motives are pretty much crystal clear. And so Peter rebukes him for this. Um, so we're at like verse 19. Uh, well, let's do 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. I mean, you could say, no, Simon was just trying to be another good guy. He wanted to give the Holy Spirit. He wanted to be a partaker of this uh, evangelism effort too. But that's not how Peter understands the situation. As he says to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. So, a pretty clear law gospel message here by Peter. He, he 
notices that Simon is just trying to obtain this with money, and that's backwards to everything that the disciples have been about, um, God's free gift of grace. Uh, remember Peter in the temple there with that lame beggar? Uh, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And that's the true gift that they have. But it's not an exchange because you give me this, I'm going to give you that. It was a free gift that Peter gave to that lame beggar. And it's a free gift given to all of the Samaritans because of what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. So Simon, introducing money into the picture, like this is some kind of uh, transaction that, that he can, can purchase and buy and own, is, is wrong. And Peter says that, but unlike our friends from earlier, Ananias and Sapphira, uh, who remember their hypocritical actions of they sold some property and feigned that they were giving all of it to the apostles, but they secretly held some of it back and then lied to the apostles about that, those guys were immediately struck down. Right? That great act of God's judgment. Here, Simon is given an opportunity. An opportunity once more to hear the clear word of God, to turn from your sinful heart and your sinful motives, repent and believe. And Simon's response is interesting. Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. What do you think of Simon's response to Peter? Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Good, bad, indifferent. What kind of a response is that to what Peter said? He's scared. He just wants to save his skin. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, you you can un, undo what you just did. Give me blessings and not curses. Yeah. Yeah. It it I think I I agree with with kind of our general sentiment so far is that it doesn't it doesn't seem like his response is is the right response. It's not the response of the people, you know, all uh, repented and are baptized and then there was, there was joy. Instead, I kind of feel like he's still stuck with this, there's this important man and the important man is always the person that Simon seems to want to be. And so when Philip was there, he attached himself to Philip. Now that the apostles are there, Forget Philip. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with these guys. They're important. Everybody seems to follow them. They have power. Again, it's speculation to know exactly what kind of sorcery Simon was into. But remember that I talked about how there's kind of you know the the slate of hand kind of illusion artists. But there is real sorcery. There are real evil spirits out there that that people can 
call upon, and those spirits can act in, in powerful ways in this world. That's a reality. And I think maybe Simon sees, oh, he must know a more important spirit or something. And so I, I want... I want, I want to have what you have. I want, I want an upgrade of what you are. Or I want to be more important. Because Simon does not immediately turn to God. He doesn't pray to God. He says, Peter, you're the important one here. You, you fix this. You pray to God. You pray to, to whoever this important power is and you fix my situation. So it's almost like he's acting as though Peter is this mediator when, again, the, the message is of the gospel is there is only one mediator between God and man, Jesus. And we've talked about this before, that idea of the priesthood of all believers. We all have access to Jesus. You don't have to go through your pastor to pray to Jesus. You don't have to go through your pastor to read the Bible or, you know, to, to have your own relationship with God. But Simon, it's, it's hard. Is he scared of God? Does he really not believe that this God is who Philip and Peter have said he is? In the whole, something's missing. It's incomplete. And it does not seem like after this story, Simon is going to leave um, being right with God. He, he's still puzzled. And the afterlife of Simon is interesting in the early history of the church. Um, again, it's it's hard to know for sure whether, whether this is, is true, but the early church talks about this same Simon, that he will later move to Rome, and he continues doing the same kind of things that he did among the Samaritans. That is, that he, he's trying to do powerful magic and signs and get people to follow him. There's a man named Justin Martyr. Um, he, he's writing in the early second century, and he claims that uh, he grew up in a city of Samaria, Justin did, and claims that he knew about this Simon. Uh, the, the chronology, I don't think he would have been alive when Simon was alive, but again, the, the word of mouth about this Simon. And so it's Justin who tells us that this Simon went to Rome and continued to do the same kind of bad things. In other words, he didn't convert. Uh, he, he didn't become a Christian. There are others um, that talk about this Simon in the early church as the uh, first true heretic. So the first true false teacher. So he would take things that sound Christian or he would take upon himself the, the cloak of Christianity, but he was not teaching the truth. And so some of the first early heresies, the early church traced back to this man, Simon. Again, it's hard for me to say historically whether that is actually true and accurate, but it seems pretty clear. Everybody among the early Christian community that read about Simon, they didn't leave this story thinking everything ended well with Simon. Uh, this is a way how not to receive the gospel. 
later in the church history, um, maybe you've heard this term, simony. Have you ever heard the term simony? S-I-M-O-N-Y. No, not it. No. Simony was a, it's not very common today, but if you're a historian and you read old church history stuff, it was a pretty, unfortunately, common practice in the early church and even in the time of Martin Luther. Simony was the practice of buying power in the church. You can see why it's named after this guy. So Simony, the name comes from this man, Simon, who was trying to purchase from Peter the power to give the Holy Spirit to other people. And in the church, this became a term for people who tried to buy offices of the church. So people that wanted to become a bishop, you too can become a bishop but I'm not a priest. That's okay. But I'm married. That's okay. To 12 women. That's fine. But the price did go up a lot. You pay, we'll make it happen. We'll turn a blind eye to this. This was unfortunately, like I said, common in the, the Roman Catholic Church in the medieval period and up until the Reformation as well. And again, this is one of the things that just struck Martin Luther because he saw how corrupt the Roman Catholic Church was and that it turned into money and power rules, not the word of God. Um, you, again, today you would think nobody's, nobody's going to pay money to uh, become a pastor. Well, wait, we do pay money to be a pastor because we go to school. Um, but it's, it's different. You would pay money to become a bishop because you control all of that territory, you control all of the churches, you control all of the offerings that come in, and you control the sale of, in Luther's day, like indulgences and whatnot, and so it, it was a powerful thing. Um, it, was, it had nothing to do with spirituality. It had nothing to do with wanting to be closer to God. But this Simon Magus, uh, he has a lot of baggage that gets attached to his name. Again, this is all Luke says about him. So uh, for better or for worse, he doesn't come out as one of the, the good guys in this part of the story. All right. So that's Philip among the Samaritans. It, it turned out that they, I had a lot more to say there than, than I thought, so we spent a lot of time. Any, any other questions of clarification? It, it's not an easy story, but it's, it's important to Luke because, like I said, this is new and different. So are you saying that maybe Peter noticed that? Because in verse 13 it says, mm. Simon himself believed in himself. Yeah, and, and so... Yeah. Yes. Uh, it's, it's, well, no, it's, it's right there in the verse when Simon comes up to Peter and offers him money. Yeah. So there he's like. In the notes, it says sometimes that happens with new Christians. They don't quite get it yet. Yeah. Yeah. So in you, okay. So yes, the, the, the offering of money. Peter's, Peter knows that, that more is going on than just he doesn't get it. Um, but uh, again, 
I would be I would be uncomfortable in saying where did the chain, you know, was Simon just going through the motions before or did he truly like until he sees the apostles come there and this new thing and all of a sudden his eyes get really big again. And he's like, that's cool. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. But it's very clear by offering Peter money. Uh, Peter's like, no. But even if Peter was wrong, again, repent. Get, get, get right. This isn't right. Yeah. 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 I, I, I would say people are still figuring things out. But again, the, the offering of money is it's not I'm still figuring it out. It's I, I want this. It's that take possession of it. Okay, so the Samaritan church multiplies, and then we hear that the apostles go back to Jerusalem, Peter and John, and then, this is an important thing, as they're going back, they're doing their thing. They're telling other people. So as they go back to Jerusalem, they're going through other towns in Samaria or meeting other Samaritans. They're telling them about Jesus. That's sort of how this all uh, comes to an end. And so the apostles clearly do now get it. They get this part of the story. They're still going to have problems, but they seem to get at least this much that's happening, that the Samaritans too can be a part of this, that they are our brothers and sisters. And that's, that's an awesome thing. Because like I said, in the gospels, the Jews relationship to Samaritans is not that way. This is big time conversion, not just converting the Samaritans, but converting the hearts of the apostles and the other early Christians to see the true reality of what Christ means to them. The second part of the story. There are two stories here about Philip bringing the gospel to different groups. The first part was the Samaritans, and it's this this whole city. The second part is a much more personal encounter. Um, the, an angel of the Lord uh, brings Philip into uh, an encounter with this Ethiopian eunuch. Do I have to explain what a eunuch is? a castrated male uh, who is a high servant for the Ethiopian queen. Um, the, it, the details about that he's an Ethiopian eunuch, uh, it, it's hard to know how much to take into this, but um, there is in, in the law of Moses in the Old Testament a verse about how uh, if there is a, a man who is who doesn't have testicles or whose testicles are crushed, that, that they're, they can't quite come to the same level of closeness in the temple, that proximity to the holy place as, as other men. Um, and so they're kind of at a distance. But everything we know about this Ethiopian eunuch is telling us that he, even though he was in Ethiopia, he was a Jew, a practicing Jew. In the first place, he had gone to Jerusalem to participate in the worship there. If he wasn't a Jew, he, would, he wouldn't have gone to Jerusalem in the first place. Um, secondly, he's reading on his way back a scroll of Isaiah. Um, this is uh, remarkable on a number of levels because to have access to a scroll of the Bible is 
the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, is not a common thing. Remember when people wanted to study the scriptures, they would go to their synagogues. The synagogue would have the scriptures and there they would come and they would listen to it. The word of God came to them through their ears. But to read something was out of the range of most everyday people because to have a book, a book would have been expensive or a scroll because a scroll has to be written and copied out and that takes time and it takes skill and time and skill together are going to cost a lot of money. Literacy rates are also, you know, we're not exactly sure how many people could and couldn't read. So even if you had the money, if you couldn't read, you're not going to be purchasing this. Another problem is that if it was done in Hebrew, what happens if you don't know Hebrew anymore? A lot of the Jews at this time spoke Aramaic. They understood that. That was their common language. This guy is from Ethiopia, so it's not even clear if he would have known Aramaic. Instead, most of the Jews in the diaspora, that is Jews that were scattered across the Roman Empire, their common language usually was Greek. The Septuagint is the Old Testament translated into Greek, and that was their Bible. So he he could have known that, which again, Philip, by name, Philip, that name is a Greek name. So Philip probably has a common connection that that he's a Greek-speaking guy and can speak to this uh, Ethiopian in this way, uh, or explain things maybe uh, a little bit better. Well, there's there's... A lot we don't know, but what we have is a faithful Jew coming back from Jerusalem, and Philip is there to encounter him as he is in his chariot. He hears that he's reading about Isaiah. Another interesting thing, um, he hears that he's reading Isaiah. What's going on there? He's familiar with Isaiah. But again, yeah, the, this, this Ethiopian eunuch is in his, his chariot and reading out loud, which is a very common practice. Today, we read out loud like in public places, but I would say 99% of the time if you're reading, your lips aren't moving. You're not speaking out loud. This seems to be a pretty common phenomenon, though, in the ancient days, to speak out loud. And there are different thoughts on why this happens. One of the commonly talked about reasons is that they wrote differently than we do. So in writing down manuscripts, they joined all of the words together in such a way that... There, there, I actually I have a little bit of space there, but every letter was next to the other letter. There were no breaks in the page, and uh, this was just the common way that they did it. If you're ever in, um, in Greece, uh, you can see that still in some of the museums, stone inscriptions and monuments. You may not know the Greek language, and that really doesn't matter, but what you'll see is that all it's like a checkerboard, and in every square, there's a letter. There aren't spaces, there aren't paragraph breaks or any of that. And so 
because we don't have that custom, it's a little bit of conjecture, but some people say that it would have been understood by people, even though there were no spaces, because that's that's was the common way. But speaking out loud helped to slow down the process of reading so that they have a little bit more time and space mentally to, to break up words. Because you know that you're thinking, how would they even make sense of that? Because sometimes letters could be together and you're not sure where the word breaks are. Isn't that really confusing? And again, it's confusing if you're looking on it in the out, from the outside, but if that's what you've grown up with and that's all you know, your brain learns how to deal with it. It's, it's okay. So that's one of the, the possible theories of why is he reading out loud? Why didn't he just read to himself? Another idea may be that there were other people around. Um, clearly, this guy was an important official. He wasn't the only person there. There, there had to have been other servants or, or whatnot. And so he was doing it out loud so that they heard the word of God too. Whatever's going on, it is important that he was reading out loud because that's what our man Philip hears. He hears him reading that. And the encounter that Philip has with him is kind of interesting. So we're at like verse 29 here in chapter 8. So the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the Isaiah prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. It's Isaiah 53. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his, ju- in his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? Is this about himself, or is this about someone else? Now this is a real, genuine question that readers of the Old Testament had. There is this section in the latter part of the book of Isaiah that there are numerous references to the servant or my servant. And these are often called servant songs or the suffering servant songs because one of the things that kind of ties them together is that this servant of the Lord, this one who does the Lord's work, suffers. It doesn't exactly go well for this servant. And the question that people have when they're reading this is, who is this servant? Is Isaiah talking about himself and saying that this is what it's like to be the prophet of God? And and does that explain what is going on there? But there are times when the servant is referred to as Israel. So it seems like Isaiah is not saying that he is the servant, rather Israel is the servant. And so, oh, it's, it's just talking about the whole nation of Israel, how they bear and bring the word of God and, and that they, they will suffer for that. And so that was kind of one of the big cruxes here of interpretation, trying to figure out who, who is Isaiah talking about. 
But Jesus comes along and Jesus has identified himself not only by his words, but by his very life, that he is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Um, and the, the scriptures are, are in the Gospels are good to kind of point out some of those allusions or to show how this was in fulfillment of uh, what Isaiah the prophet said, so that we, as readers of the Gospels, both now but also in the, in the days of old, would see those connections between the Old Testament prophecies and Jesus himself. But our Ethiopian eunuch friend here, he doesn't apparently know all of that stuff. But you got to imagine that Philip, the Holy Spirit has brought you to this chariot and this is after your big encounter among the Samaritans and preaching and the baptism and then wondering, you know, things, you know, can, can I get a break here? What's going to happen in this encounter with this man in the chariot? And when Philip, I think, hears that this is what he's reading and struggling with, Philip's like, yes, a softball. This is an easy one. This is one I can answer. I'm glad you didn't ask me a really complicated one, but I can tell you exactly who that's about. It's not about Isaiah. It's not about Israel. Well, it is about Israel. It's about God's true son, and it's about Jesus. It's unclear if while this Ethiopian eunuch was in Jerusalem for these festivals, if he had started to hear some of the stories about Jesus. It's hard to believe that he hadn't. And so Philip has the chance to kind of connect some of the dots. And we don't know what all of the conversation was like. We just know that Philip helped him connect the dots, and the Ethiopian eunuch in, in, in turn shows this true understanding of what's going on, because unlike our friend Simon, who's, you know, how can I have this power? How can I purchase it? When they come by an oasis here in the desert, a, a pool of water, it's the Ethiopian eunuch who says, what's stopping me? from being baptized. So again, whatever Philip said, he got to the part of like the Pentecost story, repent and be baptized every one of you and receive the Holy Spirit. The Ethiopian eunuch wants this too, and he receives it. So as I introduced the story, I said, why is it important that he's an Ethiopian eunuch? Uh, he's clearly a Jew, just like all of the other Jews in Jerusalem that heard the gospel. But again, that he's a eunuch, there was this distinction uh, among the Jewish men that he couldn't quite have the same access that, that everybody else did, that he was a little bit unclean or defiled. He, he was not perfect and holy as God required. But as he hears the story about Jesus and his message, and as he asks to be baptized and is baptized, he is brought into the family. He is connected to Jesus. There is nothing that is keeping him away from God. There is there's nothing in the way. He is just like Philip, a, a true child of God, and he 
rejoices. He is rejoicing and we don't hear anything more about him. But again, we can, we can pretty much assume that he is going to bring this message back home with him. And so the word of God is going out. This is all kind of just a prelude. Um, it's not really anything new. I mean, it's a new geographical location, but unlike the story of the Samaritans, this Ethiopian eunuch, we would basically understand him to be a, a, a Jew, uh, a practicing Jew, a believing Jew. He didn't live in Jerusalem, but he read their scriptures. He believed as they did. He wrestled with the same questions that Jews would have as they're hearing and understanding scripture. But now he's heard about Jesus. He believes in him. He's baptized. He's a part of this family. So Philip has had two different encounters. They're very different, very different groups, very different people. But what's common throughout all of them? It's the same message. The message doesn't change. It's Jesus. It's evangelism. It's the good news about Jesus. And he's sharing it with people in different circumstances, in different ways. The story of the Ethiopian eunuch is kind of more personal, one-on-one conversational evangelism. You, you find out what somebody is struggling with and how can I point that struggle, that issue back to Jesus? How, how can I show them that, that the hope that they're looking for, the answers that they're looking for are in Jesus. With the Samaritans, it seems that it was not so much a a one-on-one thing as it was he was dealing with crowds of people. Um, It talks about him going and healing all the people of the city. The whole city comes and believes and is baptized. True, we do hear about one individual. We hear about this man, Simon, but he's, he's just getting the word out. And for us, it's not that we read in, in Acts a prescribed program of evangelism, that evangelism must look like this, because in different times, in different ways, it looked different. But the common thread is always the Word of God, Jesus. That is the heart and center of it. And so Philip's stories both end the same way that the word of God is preached, the people believe, baptized, and rejoice, that they have heard that message, that they can be a part of that message too. And with that, Philip kind of disappears. We're going to hear about him in Acts 21.8, just kind of as a throwaway. But what we hear is that he goes from Gaza, which were along the Mediterranean coast. Uh, Gaza is like uh, the Philistines, it's, it's one of the city of the old Philistine people, and it's the one on the, the, like the southern border. So Gaza would lead down to Africa and to Ethiopia where this eunuch was going. But he goes north up the coast to here in Acts, uh, we read it's the city of Azotus, another name for the same city. It's the city of Ashdod, which is another one of the city of the Philistines, but it's, it's farther north. So Philip is taken by the Holy Spirit away from where he was in Jerusalem uh, uh, or among the Samaritans to see this Ethiopian eunuch in Gaza. And then he walks back up. 
He walks back up and goes to Ashdod, and then he goes from there to Caesarea, which is probably about another 30 miles north of Ashdod, and he's going to remain there. And based on what we know about Philip, when he went to Ashdod and when he went and stays in Caesarea, what's he going to be doing there? He's going to just keep doing what he's been doing. The word is getting out. Again, Luke chooses not to follow Philip around um, because he has an agenda. This is about how the gospel goes out to all of these different groups and how the apostles were the witnesses of this. And so he's got to get back to the story. But he puts Philip in Caesarea and it would seem we'll follow in Acts 28, 21-8, that Luke is a part of the story at that time and he sees Philip in Caesarea. Um, Luke and Paul are both in Caesarea. Philip is there, it says. And so they probably heard these stories at that time. Philip told him, oh, you know, how is it that you ended up in Caesarea? Well, that's, that's an interesting story, let me tell you, because I wasn't going to Caesarea. First, after the great persecution, after Stephen, uh, I, I was going to the Samaritans. And, you know, well, let me tell you what happened there. But then, even after that, the Lord brought me to this Ethiopian eunuch. And so, the stories of Philip most likely were heard firsthand from Philip at his time uh, in Caesarea when Luke and Paul were there. Questions, comments on the Ethiopian eunuch story? The, the NIV Concordia Study Bible gives the possibility that uh, the eunuch was a, was a God-fearing Gentile. It, it's, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, it is possible. Uh, the, the, the big thing is that um, because he go, he's going to, the, to Jerusalem and to be a part of that, uh, yeah. It, it could go either way. But the point is, whatever his status, he, he is a God-fearing one. He, he would be either a Jew or a convert to Judaism. The only, this isn't implicit um, or explicit, it's implicit, is that we're going to hear about the story of Cornelius in a little bit. And the emphasis is pretty clear that like this is the first time the gospel has gone to the Gentiles. And so if he would have been a Gentile and a convert, they still would have, you know, considered him, him a, a Jew. But it, it's probably a, we're splitting hairs. It's not, it's not the point of the story. What is important is that he was following the, the Jewish way of life whether born and raised or converted to it and considered part of them, but he's, he's realizing there's, there's things he, don't, he doesn't understand. Uh, what is this pointing to? And Philip is able to say, we're pointing to that same Messiah that God has told us about in the Old Testament scriptures. This is not a new thing. This is a continuity with the Old Testament and what God has always promised uh, from the beginning. Okay, um, chapter 9. We're not going to even be able to do justice to this, so I'm going to kind of introduce it. Uh, I've kind of got a half step off in where I want to be, and so we'll, we'll do justice to chapter 9 next week, but just to introduce it. So chapter 9 is going to be all about Saul. Yeah? Yes. 
Chapter eight. Yes. You are. Yes. Yes, so that's 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 the question. That's why it's confusing. And uh, you you missed us last week. We spent more time on it, Sylvia. So the ha- there's a handout there. But the crux is um, either the whole they did not receive the Holy Spirit at all, in which case you you have to answer not only the baptism part. You know, we talk about they received the Holy Spirit at baptism, but the word of God was preached to them. Philip preached Jesus. And we also believe that the Holy Spirit comes and works through that word. And so either Luke is bad at narrating the story because he shouldn't say they believed because you cannot believe apart from the Holy Spirit. You cannot say that Jesus is the Christ, your Lord, apart from the Holy Spirit. So what you have is is an issue here. And whenever you get to, this isn't the only difficult scripture verse. There are a lot of scripture verses that are difficult. You go to other places in scripture that are more clear, and those are your anchor. That's your foundation. And so you say, this is what I know. How does that fit with this? So go back to the apostles' teaching on Pentecost. They say, repent and be baptized, every one of you, and receive the Holy Spirit, right? So they teach that's, that's the doctrine, right? That's how this is supposed to happen. Isn't that what Philip did, right? He did the same thing that the apostles did that is up to this point. He preached Jesus and lead them to repentance so that they would want to believe and be baptized because he, he did the same thing with this Ethiopian eunuch and we see how that went. So in the apostles coming, they don't chastise Philip, right? They don't say, Philip, you didn't preach Jesus. You, you did something else, something wrong, right? They didn't chastise the people. They didn't say, you Samaritans, you, you didn't repent. You didn't really believe this stuff. There's, only, there's a disagreement with Simon, but he's, he's treated as, as different. The people of Samaria rejoiced after all of the stuff with Philip happened, but before the apostles came. So... That's, that's the normal sign, right, of the reception of the Holy Spirit, that, that there is that joy that, that comes from knowing, hey, this is what God has done, and he has given this to me, and I'm a part of it. So in other words, everything else that we read in the text would seem to indicate that they didn't do anything wrong. There's nothing deficient there. The Holy Spirit would have been there. So what I'm saying is that what is happening with the apostles is not very different than what happened with the apostles at the beginning of Acts. Remember, Jesus said, wait here for the Holy Spirit. Did they not have the Holy Spirit before? Would would you say no? Or would you say, yeah, they did have the Holy Spirit before? 
I think we would say yes, uh, very clearly. If if no other if no other place from from John's gospel, we know that Jesus comes, you know, in that locked room and says, "Receive the Holy Spirit. My peace I give to you," and you know, commissions them to be able to bind and loose sins. And the Holy Spirit is very clearly there. So. It's not that they had not received the Holy Spirit, but that there, the Holy Spirit would be received as a new gift of the Holy Spirit and, and a new power. Because the Holy Spirit is, is God, is the third person of the Trinity, and God has all gifts. But God does not give all gifts to, all peop- to, to one person, right? Some people are gifted in some ways, some are gifted in others, and the idea is that we come together as the body of Christ, the strong and the weak, and we, we help one another and do God's work. So some people don't receive everything that the Holy Spirit has. They just receive parts of those gifts. I would say that the disciples there in Acts 1, they have the Holy Spirit, they have salvation, that's not in question, but they're going to receive a new power of the Holy Spirit, and we see on Pentecost what that new power is. It's that ability to, A, that people would see the Holy Spirit, like, there on them in the tongues of fire, and here, the Holy Spirit is present. They know the Holy Spirit is present. Why? They're speaking in my language, and you're hearing in your language, and they know that that's, that just doesn't happen. It, it is a confirmation of the Holy Spirit that he is there present, and what they are saying is the same God at work. So it's, it's this confirming sign of the Holy Spirit. Is, is all that clear so far? or? So my, the way I'm trying to say, I think that's what's going on with the Samaritans. So they already do have the Holy Spirit, but they don't have this, they talk about the Holy Spirit falling upon them and they, they don't see the Holy Spirit. So it's like they're looking for a visible sign. And again, Luke, Luke doesn't tell us what the visible sign is after the apostles pray, but Simon can see the Holy Spirit. So whatever it was, it was it was visible. It wasn't just, oh, the apostles came and they said a prayer and like, what changed? It's all still the same. Simon was moved by whatever they did. It's just Luke, he just he doesn't tell us what it is that he saw. So Acts 18, 8, 16, I'm saying is it's this confirming gift of the Holy Spirit on the Samaritans. And the reason why that's so important is because Jews and Samaritans are like two different people. That's what they kind of think of one another. Even though Jesus has already had encounters with Samaritans, John 4, and tells the story about the good Samaritan and and shows that there's actually something there in them, even if Jews and, and Samaritans don't recognize it. The apostles and the Samaritans, I think, needed to see that sign of the Holy Spirit so that there would be no prejudice in the church, so that there would be no division, but they would know and understand they have received the same gospel, the same Holy Spirit, and we are all the, you know, part of this. There are very few times in Acts where it talks about the Holy Spirit coming in visible ways. But 
at Acts on Pentecost, it does. Here, it does. And it's going to with Cornelius. What's the common thread there in all of those? Why in those instances and not in other places? It didn't happen with the Ethiopian eunuch. There was no sign of the Holy Spirit. I mean, you would say there's sign because he showed faith. He said, I want to be baptized too. I would agree. Yes, that's absolutely true. But it seems that this is the way Luke is telling the story. It's what God did. But the reason why at all of those places is because this is a profound leap in people's understanding that the gospel is not just for one group of people. It's for everyone. And there might have been doubts and confusion about that had not the Holy Spirit shown in a visible way. It didn't mean that they wouldn't have been saved without that, but it's, it's kind of a new, uh, a new visible way to confirm it. So that's, that's the, my best explanation. It does not mean the Holy Spirit wasn't there. It doesn't mean that the baptism was deficient, but that that they need they they were looking for Pentecost to happen here in the Samaritan village, and it at first didn't. But then when the apostles came and prayed, it, it did. That doesn't answer every question. It's still a difficult passage, but that's kind of my way of of looking at it. All right, thanks Sylvia, because that got us to the end of time, uh, and so I will start afresh Acts nine next week. Thank you for listening to this Bible study. If you have questions or comments about something you've heard, let us know by leaving us a comment on our webpage, stpaulslutheran.net, and look for the menu About Us. Our Bible class meets Sunday mornings at 9.50 a.m. at 1780 Career Center Road, Bourbonnet, Illinois, 60914. We'd love to see you there. Come and grow together in Christ with us.